Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, I'm Tom Butler. I'm Brendan Duffy. And I'm Tom Wheatley. And, and you're, you're listening, listening to the James Bond A to Z podcast. Join us as three lifelong 007 fans go on a journey of discovery. We're on a mission to discover everything we can about cinema's greatest spy films. By learning about the people who made them, in front of the camera and behind. The James Bond A to Z podcast is in no way affiliated with James Bond, Eon or the Fleming Estate. We've researched each episode as extensively as we can, but our information does come from a range of sources. We do our best to make sure the information is accurate, but sometimes we can get it wrong. If you want to correct us on something or add some more detail, email us at podcast at jamesbondatoz.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the James Bond A to Z podcast. And this is another episode exploring the 1981 James Bond film for your eyes only, starring Roger Moore as 007. My name is Tom Butler and joining me as we return to St. Cyril's is Mr. Brendan Duffy. Hello. And, and dialing in from his new home on the South Coast is our very own East German champion, Mr. Tom Wheatley. Very nice. <laughs> and our special guest right to talk about For Your Eyes Only is a filmmaker and self-professed lover of the 1980s Bond. It's Mr. Jonathan Sothcart. Welcome. Hello. Thank you for having me. Now, Jonathan has over 40 film producer credits to his name, including Vendetta, We Still Kill the Old Way, Age of Kill and Nemesis, which came out this year. He also has writing credits on 10 films and is the CEO of Shogun Films. Does that sound about right, Jonathan? Yep, yep. I'm glad you only mentioned the good films because the other 37 are all terrible. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah, that, that sums me up quite well, I would say. Very good. Just to kick things off, I was reading an interview with uh, you and you said that James Bond is a huge influence in everything I do. So I wondered if you could just start off by telling us a little bit about how you first got into Bond. Yeah, I came to it really late. Um, I mean, you know, I was born in 1980 and um, Octopussy was one of the first movies that I saw at the cinema. In fact, it, it was either that or Return of the Jedi. I can't remember because I was three. And my parents obviously dragged me along, you know, hoping to keep me quiet. But I, but I remember the poster at the cinema more than anything else. But I was no big Bond fan as a kid. So, um, you know, my parents used to rent them all, see them at the cinema. And I remember the Timothy Dalton ones. And I remember all the big hoo-ha in the playground about License to Kill being a 15, and you had to get someone older to rent it so you could watch it. But when I was about 14, a friend of mine at school lent me some, some VHS tapes of, um, of all of them. I don't know how he, he had the whole lot. And I, and I had this kind of awakening watching Don't Laugh, Moonraker, um, and thought, wow, this stuff is really, really, really cool. This is actually, um, it, it was kind of the moment when I transitioned from being like into horror movies into liking stuff like that. And, uh, and my, my sort of focus shifted into that. And, and I just loved it. And I, you know, I saw them all out of order. Um, it's not like I had any context to them sort of chronologically, but I was old enough to understand that they were made in different times. Um, but the great thing about Bond, of course, is that there's basically zero continuity in the classic ones. Um, so it doesn't really matter, apart from the Lazenby one and Diamonds Are Forever, it doesn't really matter what order you see them in. So that was, um, that was a pretty cool thing. Um, and then I, I, became a sort of film journalist um, and, and made all these DVD extras and, and got to work with some of the, the really big sort of players in that sphere, Christopher Lee, Roger Moore. And, and when I became a film producer, I thought, you know, there's this great opportunity here to, to sort of um, cast all these actors that I grew up watching. Um, and I've been very lucky to have a, a whole load of Bond alumni in my, in my various films over the years. And of course, it's, it's, I mean, you mentioned, I don't know why you picked on Age of Kill, which is a horrific film that I made but at the premiere I'm um, Deborah Moore Roger's daughter sat behind me and when the uh, when the credits came on she leaned over to me and she said wow this is like a really low budget spy who loved me credits and I thought yeah that's exactly what we we're going for um, so it has always been a massive influence and, and particularly those those 80s um, Bond films you know I mean, I'm a big 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 fan of John Glenn and uh, I, I think he he's certainly the most underrated Bond director of the lot and I guess they're the ones that resonated with me the most. It doesn't necessarily mean I think they're the best, but, but those, those five John Glenn movies for me are the kind of quintessential ones in the way that for lots of people, the sort of, you know, From Russia With Love, Goldfinger and, and the other Connery ones are. 
Yeah, you, you said when we invited you on that sort of 81 to 85 is your sweet spot for Bond. Any reason why? Yeah, I I just, I think they got the tone a lot better. I mean, I haven't watched For Your Eyes Only for some years until I watched it today. And I mean, I've always thought it was probably the most underrated one. And now I think it's maybe the best one of them all. It's such a good movie, even out of the context of Bond, you know. And And when you think at the time, it was more than holding its own with Indiana Jones and Superman and all those kind of movies for a very basic espionage thriller, which it is. There's no world domination in this. They're they're basically fighting a you know a, a guy who's selling secrets. You know, it's it's got more in common with uh, with the Fourth Protocol than Moonraker, really. And yes, it's it's got some stunning locations and all the travel log and exotic elements we want from Bond. But it's it's a great movie. Um, Oxpercy, I just think, is spectacular. There's, there's kind of endless spectacle in that movie, and it's it's so big and, and sprawling and wonderful. And I, I think Roger and Maud Adams had the best chemistry in that one. They they had great. I love Louis Jordan, such a great. Um, elegant villain and and a view to a kill is just is my absolute favorite because it's so much fun um and i just wish they'd had the foresight to address roger's age in it you know if they if they given that the tone of never say never again i think it'd be a much more um enjoyed movie yeah that's definitely a good point um well getting to the to, to the nub of it when did you first can you remember when you first saw for your eyes only yeah um it was when i was when i was 14 15 um i literally watched all of them then um in, in a flurry of, of vhs tapes and to be honest with you it didn't really stand out to me at the time i think at the time that the the more ones that resonated with me the least were this and the spy who loved me the the ones that really grabbed me were were uh, moonraker ox pussy live and let die you know the, the the real sort of big ones for your eyes only doesn't feel as big as the others although obviously it is it is a great big movie um and there's a lot going on in it um and i think one of the reasons it's dated a lot less than the 70s ones is because it's not reliant on those those sort of giant sets and all that kind of stuff although i was struck by the fact that the whole or most of st cyril's does seem to be on a stage at pinewood it's a remarkable set but at the time i just presumed it was a monastery in greece it never it never occurred to me that was a a set until I watched it today, but it but it feels a lot more grounded, even even the production design than all those kind of submarine hangars and space stations and Scaramanga's funfair and all those kind of crazy way out seventies things that I guess started with Blofeld's volcano. Yeah, it's a, it's a good point. I think um, I think you hit the nail on the head when you're talking about um, it, it isn't as memorable when you first started watching it as a young person. That we've said the same thing really, where it's one of the films that we've seen the Bond films many many times. But for your eyes only, before I watched it a few days ago, I could only have picked out two or three scenes from it that I could remember. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's definitely sort of a bit I, I, hidden one. I'll tell you what it is with it, um, and I, I was thinking about this today as well, is, is all those bomb films when we were kids, we didn't necessarily know the names of them. But you'd say the one with Voodoo, the one with Jaws, the one with this. For your eyes only hasn't got a, a one with because it's not the yeah. skiing one, because that's on a Majesty's Secret Service. It's not the underwater one, because that's Thunderball. But, um, you know, it, it doesn't have that one big thing. And also, I think it does lack a kind of iconic villain. That's the one thing it's lacking. And it's yeah. not down to Julian Glover, because he's a terrific actor and he does what he can with the material. But Chris Statos is pretty flat. And, and Eric Krieger is just a really poor man's um, Robert Shaw. <laughs> Interesting that you said that um, Spy Who Loved Me is one that didn't grab you because that to me is like the quintessential 70s Bond um, Still don't like it I think it's the most overrated one out of all of them Wow, okay <laughs> I know, I know, I know that's really like that's really like you're f***ing in the wind but no, I never <laughs> never liked it I always thought it was, was corny and yeah, didn't didn't take to it at all That's so interesting Bringing it back to the For Your Eyes Only then you, you've mentioned a, f- a few sort of scenes from the film but is there a specific sequence that you really sort of pinpoint as your as your favorite um in, in for your eyes only my favorite bit is is the opening scene with with blofeld in inverted commas and obviously when i first saw this movie i had no idea of all the wranglings with kevin mcclory and all that kind of stuff um so i just thought wow it looks just like telly savalas but they obviously couldn't afford to get him in the movie <laughs> So that's that's because because it's interesting, you know. I mean, there's there's all this talk, and and John Glenn told me this that they they actually wrote the script on the basis that Roger might not do it, which I'm not convinced is entirely true because they always knew he was going to do it if they get to the number. But it it is literally a sequel to an MSC Secret Service. It really does follow in that same way, and it seems to to fit exactly into that milieu in a way that you know John Glenn looked at all the old all the old bonds and decided I'm going to ignore all the Guy Hamilton ones, I'm going to ignore all the Lewis Gilbert ones. I'm going to go for that one. 
And I think that's that's sort of the tone that was set. And there's there's so much in common with it. Um, but my, my favorite bit in the whole movie, the best shot um, as, a, as, a, as a sort of filmmaker for me, is when he gets control of the helicopter and the helicopter comes up over the, um, the, the roof and Roger does that nasty little smile. And I think, yeah, that's, that's really cool. That sets the tone for it, that it's going to be a little bit different. And I, I think that, you know, the opening sequences around that time, the Moonraker one is the most spectacular. I don't think that's ever been better than, you know, that falling out of the aeroplane thing has been copied in so many other films. And after that, obviously, Fiora's only feels much smaller and, and more intimate. I, lo I love that sequence. In terms of spectacle, the bobsleigh chase, chase is fantastic. You know, that really is a, an amazing um, stunt. And so is the climbing up the mountain. I, you know, in, in these days when we see everything CGI'd, the fact that so much of that was obviously practical is very, very, very impressive. So, so I do like that. I, I think it's great. I mean, put it this way. There's nothing in it I didn't like. I was, I was kind of watching, trying to think, you know, when we're talking about this, what is the flaw in this movie? And the only thing I can come up with is that it doesn't have this kind of iconic, memorable, over-memorable villain. It doesn't help as well that Topol is so charismatic. Um, he kind of <laughs> takes a bit of that away. But, you know, I mean, thinking about the Onomashi Secret Service comparison as well, he is basically Draco, isn't he? And, and the scene where they go to the mountain at the end is the, um, you know, the, the Mercy flight coming to Blofeld's lair. It really, it's not a retread, but it really does tread in it's the same water as OHMSS. It's something we talked about, actually. There's a lot of echoes in that film. We've obviously got the beach chase sequence as well, yep. which, you know, has, has, has echoes in there. I've got the graveside stuff. Yeah, you can definitely see a straight line between those two films. But I can't let you go past with a huge name drop of John Glenn without asking you about that. So tell us about him. I mean, how did you come across meeting him and, and how do you know him? Yeah, so John... It, obviously, everyone knows before he directed Bond. And by the way, this was his first movie as director, which is unbelievable. You know, imagine nowadays someone going from being an editor to, to helming a major, major studio movie. I, I produced the DVD of The Wild Geese, and he was the editor on it. And I did the DVD commentary with him and Roger and Ewan Lloyd, who was the producer of The Wild Geese. And we made a documentary about Ewan. And uh, he was lovely. You know, John, he was, I mean, he's he was so kind of, I mean, that must be 15, 16 years ago. He's so famous, isn't he? Because he's been on all those Bond specials on TV. You know, every time the new movie came out, they'd they'd always wheel out the guys from the 80s Bond movies because they were the most amenable. They obviously had the best time making those films. And uh, and he was he was terrific. And then I was doing a podcast um, about three and four months ago and um, they said, oh, we've got a special guest on it. It's John Glenn. And so we were sort of reunited after all these years and we, and we kept in touch on email. And he's such a nice man. And I, like I say, for me, the most consistent and underrated Bond director. And when I think of a Bond film in my mind, it probably looks like a John Glenn movie. So uh, John Glenn, what, what do you think makes him so special as a director? I think he really understood Bond. I think what was great about him is obviously he'd been part of the team for what, nearly 15, 12 years before For Your Eyes Only. And one of the things I've learned from reading and talking to people who worked on them is it really was a massive collaborative effort. It's not like there was one core creative back in those days. And I think because he was a new director, he, he was kind of a, a, a blank sheet coming to the movies. Whereas, you know, Terence Young and, and um, Guy Hamilton and Lewis Gilbert were all very established filmmakers. So they brought their interpretation onto the, the movies, which is why the, they're all sort of different. You know, that there's you can tell... You can always tell who's directed them, can't you? You know, it's, it's not easy to mistake a Terence Young movie with a Lewis Gilbert movie. Um, whereas John Glenn came from the, you know, he had an established brand. He wasn't trying to push himself onto it. If he was trying to push anything himself onto it, it was the, the second unit stuff which he'd been doing, which was the stunts, all those things, which still look so slick. And I, and I think that's, that's you know, he, he really was out and out the, the director of the product rather than the director who was trying to shape the product, if you like. Absolutely, yeah. I and mean, something we talked about as well, like you highlighted the uh, the pre-title sequence, in that sort of, it's so, yeah, it's, it's masterfully done in like, you know, you can tell it's been done by someone who knows second unit and who knows editing. And from what I understand, he is very economical as a, a, as a director as well. He'll only shoot the stuff that he really needs which must be a godsend, I guess, for, for the editor. As, 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 and as a producer as well. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, I mean, it's, it's also interesting. You're right. Um, when, when they all came out on DVD and we saw the deleted scenes for the first time, there were so few. You know, I mean, I, I always remember um, the View to a Kill one where the M comes to collect him from the police station and there's all the, the crap in his pockets, like the, the wire from Parash with Love. But if that really was the only deleted scene, wow. You know, that's, that's really impressive on a film like that. Um, and that's that's the joy of, of an editor, you know, directing. Absolutely. So you, you've cast Julian Glover 
who played Christatos three times yeah. uh, to appear in films you've made. And was that because of his appearance in Few Eyes Only? That and Quasimass and the Pit, which is one of my favourite sci-fi movies. Um, yeah, I've always thought Julian was a magnificent actor. Um, but the weird thing is, um, although we've we've made these three movies together, I actually only met him on the last one. We'd never met on the first two. Um, the first one, I was in America when he shot his bits. The second one, I was stuck in traffic because he only shot one morning on it. Um, and the third one, um, well, I, I thought, damn it, I'm just going to stay here from eight o'clock in the morning and not leave till I've actually met him. And and he's such a lovely, charming man. Um, and and funnily enough, the uh, the part um, that we we had him doing, we still steal the old way, which was a sequel to We Still Kill the Old Way, um, was actually written for Roger Moore. And it was towards the end of Roger's, uh, you know, he wasn't he wasn't in the best of health. Um, but he watched the first We Still Kill the Old Way and he watched Vendetta and he, he enjoyed them. And obviously his daughter, Deborah's in, in We Still Still. And um, I said, you know, look, we'll, we'll pay you some nice money. It's only a morning. It's really easy. You know, all this kind of stuff. And uh, he said, the problem is if I do one of your films, everyone will think I need the money. <laughs> <laughs> you can't argue with that, can you? <laughs> so did you, um, when you actually met, Julian, did you talk to him about Bond at all? Did he give you any interesting insights? Yeah, 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 totally. Um, I mean, insights, I wouldn't say so much. For him, um, it was a lovely job where nothing particularly memorable happened, I don't think. You know, he, he was he was very, very keen to see... He I think he'd done The Saint as well with Roger. Um, they were certainly friends. Um, he was very keen to see Amber, um, but she wasn't there that day because he was the very first scene that we shot in Nemesis. Um, and he's great. I, yeah, he's all wonderful, wonderful... Um, he was getting on a bit now. He must be in his eighties, um, and he was he was having a real old flirt up with my wife. Um, you know, really, obviously, completely harmless and charming. But he was great and and just the ultimate pro. Um, but he, he's very he's very proud of all those things he did. And obviously, you know, he was a member of the Royal Shakespeare Company and, and really one of the country's most sort of prestigious actors. But he really enjoyed doing that and Indiana Jones and Quasar Mass and. You know, he did an episode of Doctor Who that's really culty as well, I think. Um, Star Wars as well, and, I seem to think. Uh, and, and The Empire Strikes yeah, Back. That's yeah, right. exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. In, in fact, on my bookcase in the back, which I can't really show you at the minute, I actually have his Star Wars figure, which oh. I had when I was a kid. Because, you know, how cool. And that and that's the joy of being a film producer, making the films I make, is that you kind of get to play with all those toys you had as a kid for real. That's amazing. <laughs> that is amazing. Yeah, uh, so uh, any of the others uh, that, you, that you met um, that you've cast because of, of Bond? Uh, Alison Doody, who was um, in my, obviously in my favourite of *You Shall Kill*, um, who was who was great fun. I, I, I can tell you a very funny story about her and Bond. We um, we, we checked into the hotel she was going to stay in for uh, for a *You Shall Kill*. Uh, for, for, for we still kill the old boy, and um, I can't remember the name of the hotel, but they had that you know that huge James Bond book, the one that sort of weighs about three tons um, and cost a fortune. And they had it on the 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 check-in desk at the hotel, and um, they, uh, they, they, she started sort of leafing through it, you know, to see if she was in it, like people do. And uh, and the guy in reception said, "Oh, you know, it is, it is James Bond. You know, it is uh, the James Bond. The girls are very beautiful." She went, "Honey, I am a Bond girl," <laughs> <laughs> which I thought was pretty cool. Um, and she, she, she was great fun. Um, so, so yeah, um, that for sure. Um, who else have I had from Bond films? God, it's really awkward. I should have made a list, shouldn't I? Um, well, you've had uh, Roger's uh, granddaughter made a film yeah, debut. Yeah, well, Am- Amber and so so Deborah did two for me. Deborah did We Still Steal the Old Way and um, Bonded by Blood Two, and she's great fun. Um, and then Amber, who's Jeffrey's daughter, um, made her film debut playing my wife's daughter in uh, in Nemesis, and she was great. Was so professional. You know, really, really, really talented young actress. Um, I think she's got a real and, and very unaffected. You know, when you think that her granddad was the most famous Englishman in the world, um, you'd never get that from meeting her. Um, the, 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 the more family are just the, the loveliest people. I mean, Jeffrey's one of my best friends. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they really are lovely, lovely people, like you'd expect from him. Like you'd hope, I think that's the thing, isn't it? Uh, because was, yeah, he, he he was he was the nicest man, you know. And and it, it's a cliche now. People go, oh, he was so lovely. Oh, he was this, and, but it's true. And and we did um we did something years ago, and we got out of a cab at the top of um, Carnaby Street, and uh, this is twenty years ago. Um, and he, he he stood out of the cab, and you know you couldn't mistake him. You know, he looked every bit as much like Roger Moore 20 years ago as he did 40 years ago. And about 30 Japanese schoolchildren all turned around the point stats and went, oh, my God, James Bond, James Bond, and all ran at him en masse. Um, and he stood there for half an hour signing all their school books for them. Amazing. You know, and and, and, tr- and that is the barometer I use for every 
you know, famous actor that I work with. If he could stand and do that, everyone else can too. Yeah, what an icon, a true icon. So bringing it back to the film, you mentioned the pre-title sequence and the film is bookended by two slightly outlandish sequences um, compared to the, the, the main part of um, the film, which is very espionage gritty. You've got the pre-title with Blofeld, but then you've got the post, not the post credits, but like the end scene with Margaret Thatcher as well. <laughs> and I wondered what your opinion on that. We were sort of a little bit scathing with that. It felt quite out of place with everything else. It does. It feels completely out of place, but it really made me laugh today. Um, you know, and, and maybe that's just because of, you know, the current incumbent in 10 Downing Street. But uh, I, I, it, did, it did make me laugh. And it's funny. And my God, she really did look like her, didn't she, Janet Brown? I mean, Mike, it was mm-hmm. it was uncanny. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I also remember seeing um, a, a publicity still somewhere of, of Roger stood outside that 10 Downing Street set, which is, is quite a strange image. Um, you know, I mean, that's Bond, though, isn't it? They, they, everyone else goes and, and does a sort of pre-made set, but they built 10 Downing Street, the exterior, for one shot with a policeman. <laughs> um, it, really, it really was no expense spared filmmaking. Um, yeah, I, I thought it was really funny, and it, it does jar a bit, but, um, you know, that, that, to be honest with you, what jarred for me more um, was the, the, the last-minute romance with Melina. Yeah. Because, because there yeah. Is, they have great chemistry, she's terrific, and they get on really well, but there's no romance in it at all. There's no hint of that, and I think that's just the, the fact the filmmakers felt compelled to do that, and, and a crowbar in the Fiori's only line. But, yeah, it's, it's, it's fine. You know, it's, it's, um, I think it's, it's funny. Um, and I think also, you know, with, with the, the Thatcher thing and the parrot, it was a different time. Um, you know, people expected that kind of, you know, comedy from it then. And, um, yeah, it could be worse. <laughs> we, we we just thought it dated it a little that, that yeah you know, it really yeah. keeps it in the 80s isn't it you're right it does and it's also it's a film that hasn't really dated particularly um i mean all right no one has a mobile phone and, and the atac does look remarkably like a commodore 64 but um but it does it, it hasn't dated a lot it's still it's all it's so beautifully shot um you're right it does um well, but yeah i mean it didn't bother me put it that way i always used to cringe but today it made me laugh <laughs> I guess the beauty of the ATAC, I never really thought about this before, is it? But it just it's just the MacGuffin, isn't it? They don't use it's it. Totally. It doesn't show a satellite being moved in space or anything it like that. It clearly doesn't work. No. You know, that's the thing. It's, <laughs> it looks like his lunchbox. And when and when Julian Glover's belting topple with it twice at the end, you know, I mean, that's not going to do it much good, is it? <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, yeah. So you mentioned uh, working with Roger, and I believe that you... You mentioned, I don't know if you mentioned this already, but The Man Who Haunted Himself. Now, you had a, a part to play in getting the special edition and having the the commentary done. What can you tell us about that? I, I, I did, yeah. I, I always thought it was a fantastic, incredibly underrated movie. Um, when I saw it when I was about 16 or 17, I just thought, wow, this is, this is something really special. Great story, great performance. The whole thing was just terrific. And a friend of mine called David Gregory, who's a, a very famous film distributor in the States, he's a Brit, but he, he somehow got his hands on the rights to release all of the Studio Canal films on DVD by Anchor Bay in the States. So this is about 1999, 2000. And he had all, all the Hammers and the Wicker Man and all these big cult movies. And I was helping him out doing commentary and making documentaries and all this kind of stuff and writing the line notes. And, and he, he showed me this list of the films that they were sort of umming and ahhing about releasing. And one of them was The Man Who Haunted Himself. And I said, David, you have to get this movie out there because this is, this is I can't believe it's fallen through the cracks over the years. And they took it to Anchor Bay and they said, well, you know, I think it just disappeared in the States when it came out, if it even got much of a release at all. And I, and I said, what if I could get Roger Moore to do a commentary track? And they said, well, yeah, obviously that would make a a big difference because this was right in the infancy of DVD and, you know, sort of big celebrities coming and doing these things were, was unusual. So I I got in touch um, through Leslie Brickus, the lyricist. Um, <laughs> it was a, a mutual friend. And um, and and he said yes. And a, a deal was quickly made. And, and and we had lunch at Scott's with Brian Forbes, who did the commentary as well. And we went over to do to, to, to record it. And it was great. And he was obviously incredibly passionate about it. And, uh, you know, really, really, really loved making that movie. Um, it must have felt like a real break after The Saint. You know, I mean, I'm sure he had a, a huge amount of fun making The Saint. But doing the same thing for eight years nonstop must be quite tiring. Um, and it, it's difficult, you know, when you put your heart and soul into a movie and you really believe it's the best thing you've done and then no one watches it, it must be heartbreaking. And it really did resonate in the States. You know, and I, I think that DVD release contributed to the, the real sort of cult 
status that it has now, you know, and, and deserves. So, uh, yeah, that was that's that's one thing I'm really proud of is getting that film in front of a few more people. When we uh, we saw Roger before he died doing his book tour, and I think it was one film that he really, really spoke passionately about. I know Wheatley, you and I watched it many years ago together. Yeah, I'm just I'm just realising that I I didn't even check if there was a commentary on it when we watched it, and I, I've got to find where I put it now. But it's a, it's a fantastic film. It very much um it's I'm just trying to remember how it works. It's he starts being. There's a doppelganger a that comes into his life. That's it. Yes, in. yes, yeah. yeah. And one of them, he's got a mustache. He looks fantastic with a mustache, I think. But yeah, and we had actually, we had John Cork on the podcast a few few months ago and he did the, the commentaries with Roger for a lot of the Bond DVDs. Yes, yeah, the Bonds, yeah. And he was saying that the the secret was you just let Roger do the talking and then <laughs> and then you just have a few prompts. Was that was that like your experience with with doing the commentaries with him? Totally, totally. I mean, he he was the most natural anecdotalist I've uh, I've ever met, and and so 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 funny. And the only thing about that day that would have made it better is if I could have got on record all the indiscreet stories he said at lunch in Scots rather than what he actually said on the commentary. You know, he, he was so funny. And, and I think because he's always been very protective of his image, and rightly so, the, the true humour of him. And, he, he, you know, you hear people talk about this wicked sense of humour, and it really was. You know, he used to say the most scandalous and outrageous things. Very funny. Uh, you know, I, I wrote a book about Christopher Lee when I was, I was very young. Roger wrote the forward to it. And um, I'll show you how long ago this was. He sent a fax with his forward. And he sent the first one over. And I won't say exactly what it said, but it basically said Christopher Lee is the most boring man in the world. And I thought, oh, shit, what can I do with this? Um, and then two minutes later, the fax machine starts going again. It says, Christopher Lee is a wonderful old friend of mine. And I, you know, it was so wonderful to work with a man with a golden gun and, and various anecdotes, which is great. But that's what he was like. He was really, really funny and, and, and pranky and, and that kind of thing and, and great. And I, I, told, I actually told that to Christopher Lee. Who kind of looked down his nose at me in that way that he did? Um, so very amusing, very amusing. I'm sure. Yeah, you know, he he was a man with slightly less of a sense of humour. Um, he wrote the book on uh, Christopher Lee. Yeah, yeah. When I when I was 19, I don't know what wow. I was thinking either. How was that? Yeah, it was fun. I mean, look, I went around to his flat a few times and 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 sort of sat at his feet and and heard his anecdotes. And um, you know, I worked on the Wicker Man DVD with him. Look, he was great. He was a legend. I mean, there's no two ways about it. But I, I had very little personal connection with him. Um, you know, he, he was a, a different kettle of fish altogether. I actually, um, I just did a movie with, um, do you know an actor called Paul Barber but, from Only Fools and Horses? Yeah, yeah. Denzel yeah. from Only Fools and Horses. And, um, and I, I went to see Christopher at his, um, his agent's office in Soho when I was writing this book. And um, it was just about the time The Full Monty came out, which Paul Barber was also in. So I pushed the button on the lift and the doors went ping and Paul Barber walked out and went, F***, you're like the most famous person I've ever seen. Um, you know, and, and was really starstruck with that while I was on my way to see Christopher Lee, which was, it was really bizarre. Um, that was somehow more acceptable. But he was he was really nice, you know, and obviously incredibly intelligent um, and articulate, Christopher Lee, um, and, and sort of funny in his own way. And and one of the best Bond villains, for sure. Oh, yeah. Did, he, did you talk to him about Bond? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, he, he, did, he did tell me a story that I suppose I can probably say now because he's dead. And, you know, like everything that Christopher Lee says, you probably have to take it with a bit of a pinch of salt. But obviously, you know, he was Ian Fleming's step-cousin. Yes. Not cousin, but step-cousin. And, and he said they were playing golf um, one day after Dr. No came out. And, and he said, um, you know, what do you think of the James Bond movie? And Fleming apparently sniffed and turned to him and said, James Bond is not a waiter. <laughs> oh. Yeah. But I can only attribute that to Christopher Lee, not to um, not to Ian Fleming, you know. And, and and he did say it with a twinkle in his in his eye. So um, yeah, I, I I think I think it's fair to say that Christopher Lee fancied himself as James Bond. Mm, yeah, that wouldn't be surprising. Yeah. Well, m- moving on from from one legend to another, you uh, and Lloyd, who obviously worked on a lot of the Roger Moore films, was it a bit of a mentor to you? Yeah, you and totally was. Um, you know, I made this this show about him called The Last of the Gentleman Producers, and. Um, I, I did the eulogy at his funeral as well, which um, which we called Last of the Gentleman Producers. And he was he was a real pioneer, you and you know, very smart guy, too nice for this business. But but he made two of my absolute favourite movies, The Wild Geese and Who Dares Wins, which are you know very very much um, in my view like two of the best British action movies ever. And yeah, he was he was wonderful. And yeah, had a real bond connection. I mean, he worked for Broccoli um, before Eon. He had another company. Uh, I can't remember what it was Warwick called. Warwick Films. 
Warwick, Warwick, yeah, Ewan worked at Warwick, um, and, and he very much poached all of the Bond people. You know, I mean, he even, I mean, on the flip side, he pushed Lewis Collins very hard, uh, and I would say that Ewan was instrumental in getting him in front of Broccoli, but, but Lewis unfortunately screwed that up. I, I'm sure you know the story. He turned up late and with a black eye to meet Cabby Broccoli at the restaurant in Vinewood. Oh, dear. And this thing, stinking of booze, apparently, having had no sleep, which, you know, I mean, Lewis was lovely, but I can totally believe that. This must have been the around the 80s then when Roger was playing hardball, I guess. I think it was probably um, for the Living Daylights. I mean, I, I don't know. You know, it's funny. Obviously, I'm, I'm no means a Bond expert or anything like that, but I've met so many of these people and sort of osmotically taken a lot of it on. I used to know, um, have you guys come across a publicist? He's dead now called Jerry Pan. Mm, no. Okay, so Jerry was Roger's publicist for probably 30-odd years, maybe 40. He was also Michael Caine's publicist, and he was also Pierce Brosnan's publicist back in the day. And he told me that Brosnan got as far as shooting the gun barrel sequence to Living Daylights. Wow, as far as that? Yeah. Now, that, I know, I've never read that, and I don't know if it's true, but I see no reason why he'd, you know, get it wrong. Mm. Um, and he had a real, like, sharp memory, Jerry. He's a very, very, very shrewd guy. Very wow, funny. I wonder where that footage um, is sitting. Well, Amazing, there you go. So. I mean, I, obviously, they, they had all kinds of contractual problems with that because of Remington Steel mm. and all this, mm. that, and the other. Um, but it's, uh, you know, it's tantalising. I mean, I actually, I think, Brosnan got Bond at the right time. I yeah. think he, he looked, if you look at the fourth protocol, the Michael Caine movie, he looks a little bit too young and boyish for it. Um, but when it when it landed in the 90s, it was just right. And I, I love Timothy Dalton. You know, I think he was terrific. You know, really, really, really good. And I think the thing with Dalton that's great is he did two really good movies and that was it. You know, maybe the third one wouldn't have been as good or wouldn't have worked as well. Or, you know, is I mean, when I was a kid, we always used to think License to Kill was the one that didn't do very well. In the same way that when I was a kid, everyone used to go, oh, George Lazenby's the rubbish bomb. Whereas I, I think he's one of the best ones. Um, you know, and, and the film was always regarded as the weakest entry in the series by far. Um, so I think Dalton's legacy is, is improving. Oh, yeah. 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 We did many episodes on Dalton. And we, one of the things we looked at was the third film. And um, there are scripts you can read out there. But there was like talk of like a, a robot a henchman and stuff like that. So you do wonder whether... He had a lucky escape <laughs> by not being able to make that third one at that time. But um, yeah, I think he's now yeah, regarded and, and, as one of the best. Yeah, and Dalton was so not the bond for a robot henchman, right? No, exactly. <laughs> you know, of all of the things you could have said, if that had been in Die Another Day, okay. But um, I, I can't see that. It's a bit low key for that Die Another Day. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah, so uh, you mentioned on email you're writing, because uh, you're an author yourself, and you often write about tailoring, but you're writing about a tailor that worked with Roger Moore at the moment. Yeah, yeah. So I wrote this book. Uh, I've written a couple of books over the years, and I wrote this book in, in as my sort of lockdown hobby called The German Street Shirt, which was a, literally a history of German Street. And um, Doug Hayward, who, who was Roger's tailor um, on For Your Eyes Only, Octopussy and A View to a Kill, was, was a friend of mine um, and, and a tailor. And was, was a great friend. He died in 2008, very young in his early 70s. And, um, you know, as, as famous tailors go, he is the most famous. Um, you know, he was Ralph Lauren's tailor. I don't, I don't know if I can put it any more succinctly than that. And taught him everything he knew. And, uh, yeah, it just seemed like a really good, good story that needed telling. So that's, that's my current writing project. And I think one of the things that really works in Fury Eyes Only as well, that, you know, Roger always gets that old safari suits and flared trousers and all that kind of stuff. But if you look at what they did in Fury Eyes Only, there's nothing in that that you couldn't wear today. Um, you know, it's as timeless as the, the 60s um, movies. And, and it's also interesting as well for me. You know, I, I always found Connery's monochromatic look slightly boring. Um, but the Lazenby film has a real flair. You know, Lazenby was a real clothes horse and the clothes are interesting and he looks super stylish all the time. And it, it's like you have the, the, the Connery movies in the light grey, then you have the Lazenby one, then you have the mad 70s fashions, which are all crazy and everything from Diamonds Are Forever to Moonraker. And then you go to For Your Eyes Only, Octopus, Interview to a Kill, where it's all suddenly Bond looks great again. And then obviously it slipped off again with Timothy Dalton because he wasn't interested, you know, and that's, that's, that's kind of apparent. And I, I met Dalton at the, the screening of Penny Dreadful, you know, the series he did for Sky. With Sam Mendes. And, and, um, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, great, great. And he, and he was lovely. He was the nicest man. So humble and, and like really cool to chat to. Um, but I'm absolutely convinced he was wearing one of the suits from License to Kill. <laughs> Um, because he just has no interest in that kind of stuff. And he, and he had his glasses around his neck on a string like a, 
like an RE teacher. And so, so you know, he's not about the sartorial stuff at all, which I, which I get. But, but I think for your eyes only and an octopus in the view to a kill, Roger Moore has never looked better as Bond, even though he was a bit older. You know, there's, there's nothing that's dated. There's no bell bottoms and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and I think, that, you know, Hay, Haywood and, and Moore worked hand in hand, although there was a costume designer. I, I can absolutely tell you that Roger would go in and say, I want this. And Haywood would go, well, maybe if we don't have the flag cuffs or we don't have this. And, and he'd go, oh, OK, right, fine. And Haywood kind of reined him in, which I think you can really see. Roger was once uh, was one who was very inter- interested in the clothes, um, I understand. He brought his tailor with him on To Live and Let Die. Was, was it Co- Cyril Connolly? Is that right? Cyril Castle. Cyril, yeah, Castle, Cyril Castle, that's Castle, it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So it makes sense that he would always bring his, his people in. He wanted to look the part, right? He, he did. And, and if, if you look at the Saints, you know, although the cuts are different and, and everything's, you know, the, the colour palette is the same as when he was Bond. Um, you know, it was always that, that sort of grey suit, red tie, cream shirt. Um, you know, he knew what suited his colouring. He knew what cut suited his complexion. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a weird thing. You know, Roger was a big guy. You know, I mean, he was comfortably six foot two, comfortably, and, and definitely had a kind of 44 inch chest. You know, he was he was a great big man. And, and I think people realise that about Connery, but but perhaps not so much Roger um, and, and Lazenby and all those guys. And, and they, they, they it's not always easy to dress that on screen. And I, and I think Haywood particularly did. I mean, in Fury Eyes Only, he looks very tall and slim. And I how old was he in Fury Eyes Only? 53? Well, it was 81. I mean, like, yeah. Yeah, 53. I, think, I mean, God, he looks good for that, doesn't he? I mean, it's quite sickening, really. Um, you know, and, and, and he can still move. And, you know, it's, it's, it's very impressive. And, and, and I thought he looked terrific in it. I, th- I think that's his kind of peak bond, Fury Eyes Only. You know, he'd settled into it. He'd grown. He was comfortable with it. He wasn't trying to sort of make it funny you know Roger always said that Lewis Gilbert understood the comedy the best and all that kind of stuff um I I would venture that Lewis Gilbert probably made it a bit too funny in terms of the tone of the performance of Bond I think I think in Fury's only they got it just right yeah I think you're I think you're pretty much uh on on the money there it's um it's it's Roger's well the others I mean they are there are times where it gets a bit outlandish but this one really is uh is the gritty Roger Moore right I think and he's got some great yeah, scenes I, I, in this as well. He he has, and I think it sits in a, you know, kind of outside of Bond, it sits in this early 80s British, um, you know, we weren't making many films back then. You know, it's not like today. We were making very, very, very few films. And, and For Your Eyes Only is the Bond movie that sits with The Longer Friday and The Fourth Protocol and Who Dares Wins. You know, it's, it's a much more glamorous and exotic and bigger budgeted film, but it sits with those. In the same way that The Man with the Golden Gun sits with Enter the Dragon. Do you, do you think that, uh, that Margaret Thatcher's scene at the end is f- like relief for some people who maybe went there expecting Roger to be funny all the time and then at the end yeah. they just went, oh, yeah, my yeah. goodness. No, I, I do. I, I think that's why it's tonally off. And, and I suspect, I mean, you know, those films must have gone through dozens and dozens of drafts of scripts. Um, and, and I think, I mean, one of the things that I, I've heard over the years is that if they had an idea that they really liked and they couldn't squeeze it into one film, they'd sort of save it for four films down the line. You know, and, that, and that's what I mean by that sort of, um, you know, there, there wasn't one creative driving these things. It was a real sort of collaboration. And, uh, and I, yeah, I, I think that's probably a hangover from the Moonraker days. I mean, yeah, and I love Moonraker. You know, it's, it's a real guilty pleasure of mine. And I think the first two thirds of it are as good as Bond gets. It's just all that rubbish in space. That's, that's what really just lets it down. And, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of 90 minutes of great Bond and then Blake Seven at the end. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so, in terms of Bond and the British film industry, how how important is Bond in your opinion? Uh, well, I think it's always been incredibly important. I don't know what they're going to do now. I mean, I, I really, I, I've I've thought for some years that the whole sort of Amazon limited series is is the only way out they've got. Um, and I don't mean James Bond, but you know, the Money Penny Diaries and M when he was young and all that kind of stuff. I, I can see how they can make an expanded universe. Um, you know, to be honest with you, you know, I know I'm in the minority, but for me, it's not Bond anymore. You know, when Cubby Broccoli died, it kind of died with him. And I, I like Brosnan as Bond, but I don't recognise all the things I love about James Bond in the Daniel Craig movies. Um, I, I just think it's Jason Bourne dressed up as James Bond. And, and I think they overindulged an actor's um, sense of self-importance in the last one by doing what they did at the end. Yeah, there's definitely a divide between... Cubby and post Cubby, past and present. For me, I I can totally accept the modern era, but I can totally understand why 
people see a bit I, I, I a, a bit of a, di- I mean, a bit of a disconnect. Wrong, it doesn't keep me up it doesn't keep me awake at night but it, <laughs> it's not something that i you know i i look forward to in that same way but you know i, I mean i really enjoyed casino royale um i thought the second one was rubbish like absolute drivel i i thought the sky skyfall yep. um was was all right um i thought spectre was absolute crap um i i mean you know when when they injected him i thought it was all a dream after that until it wasn't yeah. the end credits rolled <laughs> And the new one, I just, I, it's just not for me. Look, it's it's more successful than anything I could ever dream of doing. So I'm in the minority. But as an aficionado, it's it's just not James Bond. I just don't see it. Um, you know, and, and I see all these outlandish theories on Twitter and stuff of, you know, why don't we do one where we bring Pierce Brosnan back and make him a, an old James Bond? I'd rather see that personally. Um, you know, I, I think either that, just kill it. If 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 what's the point in calling it James Bond and changing it that much? What good it's, point? Yeah. If um, so, we we talk about this quite a lot, as you can imagine, what they're going to do next because we haven't really got a clue. But um, if there was a, a a sort of right way for it to go, what do you think that is? Would it be going back to the sort of old roots, or would there be another route? I tell you, the, the only way I think you can make it work re- as a film is to make it period, make it sixties or eighties, yeah. do one of those things, the Cold War, and make it. Um, you know, a period piece, and then you can also address all of the components of Bond's DNA that are politically incorrect yep. because they're in context, and you can make it feel like James Bond for all of the people that don't feel it does anymore. But the problem is, you know, we were talking about how Fiora's only competed very healthily with Indiana Jones and The Empire Strikes Back and all those movies. You know, now there's Marvel, and Marvel has changed cinema forever. You know, Marvel has taken us away from star-driven movies. The star is the IP, and they're they're slowly proving that now they've got rid of Robert Downey Jr. They don't need these big stars, and I I don't know how you do that because my kids don't care about James Bond. None of them went to see the new one, um, and they're you know they're all film literate. You know, for their age, they're all really into it. My my, my ten year old's favorite one is The Spy Who Loved Me because the Lotus. You know, he's mad about cars, but the character doesn't resonate with them in the way that it does with us because it's it's one of many now. You know, it used to be a really special thing. And I don't know how old you guys are. Um, I'm 41. But when I was growing up, you know, not everyone had a foreign holiday and certainly not to exotic, far-flung places like um, Japan and, and Egypt and those kind of things. And, you know, Bond was all about firsts. You know, people, you didn't see sharks in movies. You didn't see ninjas in movies. You didn't see volcanoes in movies. You didn't see all these things. We've got the internet now. We've seen it all. There is no travelogue aspect to it. There's no exotic element to it. And I, I hate to say it, but I kind of think it's over. Well, I mean, you're talking to the wrong people here who say it's over because without this, <laughs> what are we going to do? But I don't. No, no, I don't mean that. I mean, I don't see a way of it being reborn. Look, no, you, I... you know, you guys, you guys can do podcasts till we're all eighty because there's so much to enjoy <laughs> yeah, in yeah, the legacy yeah. and 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 the richness of it. But but I I, I I totally see your point. I do think they've painted themselves into a corner with this latest version, um, and it's it, it's it's like where once you've done that and then what else is there left to do and i think i think you're totally right as well about them not now appealing to a younger audience because like you we all came to these films watching them on tv as you know a five to ten year old right? yeah as a family yeah, it's, it's yeah. What you want. every bloody christmas and bank holiday it was bomb exactly and now in the age of itv4 it's every day yeah, yeah. but the <laughs> but the daniel craig films are Eight thirty, nine o'clock at night films, rather than four o'clock in the afternoon films, and I think that's that's the problem. And you're right, the the younger generation will will they come through with this? You might pick up like the eighteen year olds and that sort of people, but the younger generation maybe aren't going to be that interested because of the yeah, like you're right, the the sort of the the the, the amount of stuff that they're able to consume that's out there. I think for me personally, I would say to solve that problem going retro is not the solution <laughs> because if you're then creating an old fashioned type hero then that's not again that's that's appealing to the 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 converted already i don't i think my only i i feel amazon this is my personal opinion will want to go young and cool they'll want to go for a tom hiddleston they'll want to make it call of duty esque it will be unlike what we've had before i think personally but um whether that's the right or wrong thing to do i'm I'm, i'll wait and find out i'll tell you what it's going to come down to i think is you know the the bond people are now all about chasing filmmakers um you know it never used to be this thing that you have these big prestigious filmmakers um taking bond over but they started it you know 
they didn't really start it with Martin Campbell because he wasn't an A-list director. He is now, but he wasn't when he did Goldeneye. Not truly A-list. Um, what they need to do is find the right filmmaker who who will find the right way of doing it. I mean, for me, if if I were the Broccoli's, you know, God forbid, we'd all be in trouble then. Um, <laughs> but but I give it to Guy Ritchie. You know, having seen the last three films, he or not the last three, but that the new trailer that came out today. Um, the, the Statham movie where he's killing bank robbers and the gentleman yeah, it needs a real kind of alpha male to come in and take it over um, and keep the DNA of it but give it that modern sort of twist and I'm not advocating Statham as Bond by the way but you know the, I, the one thing that's weird is that this is the first time I've looked at that playing field of potential Bonds I don't see anyone there's no one that I look at and go that's totally you know the guy um, I, I don't see any Pierce Brosnan I don't see any Lewis Collins. I don't see any of those guys who I just think, wow, that's that's the guy who ticks all of the boxes. Um, and I and I'm pretty open to it. I mean, you know, my my three favourite Bonds are Roger Moore, Timothy Dalton, and George Lazenby, who couldn't be any more different. But I just I don't see that one actor now who who would be the one. But then did anyone apart see from that- The Rock? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, The Rock, yeah. <laughs> Did anyone see Daniel? He's like the three of them stuck together. Yeah. <laughs> He's eaten Roger Moore, yeah. Um, <laughs> did anyone see Daniel Craig coming? That's the thing, isn't it? I guess that's what they're hoping to repeat again, is is finding that left-field choice that yeah. isn't... Yeah, I think I think the problem is, though, I mean, you know, for me, and, and I'm, I really like Pierce Brosnan as an actor. I think he's terrific. I think he was very ill-served by his movies, but he was so good for another two movies, you know, and Die Another Day made a f***ing ton of money. I will never understand for the life of me why they replaced him. That's, for me, that's where the whole thing started to go a little bit wrong, is it was the first time that the Bond people ran away from success. Yeah, well, you're, t- you're talking to the right people here because we're big fans of Brosnan. Well, at least Brendan and I are. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we think... It's such a, you know... Someone said to me once years ago, I can't remember who it was, the three great Bonds are Sean Connery, Roger Moore and Pierce Brosnan. And what do they all have in common? None of them are the best actors in the world, but they're proper movie stars. Yeah. yeah. You know, and James Bond doesn't have to be a great actor. Daniel Craig's a great actor. Dalton's the best actor in a lot of them. He's a better actor than all the others put together. But he, Dalton's not really a movie star. Yeah. Um, and for my money, Daniel Craig's not a movie star either. And I don't think he's going to have a big theatrical career after Bond. It, it's something we've talked about actually what will he do next and whether he's able to pursue the sort of the sean connery character actor sort of roles probably i mean he's got the training that he's, he's done all that stuff in the past but um it'll be interesting to see what he does do next yeah i guess we're all waiting to wait to see and find out what happens but um just wanted to ask you quickly jonathan when we again when we first spoke to you you said that you didn't for your eyes only is one of the best, but it's probably not one of your favourites. I wonder which of the Bond films are your favourites, if you had to pick one. If I my favourite one, my comfort food James Bond film is A View to a Kill. I love it. I love it from beginning to end. It's unapologetically brilliant, in my view. And I, I even like Tanya Roberts. It, it seems <laughs> that people who like View to Kill love View to a Kill, because we, we interviewed uh, a, a, yeah. another chap a while ago, and he, he, it was his favourite as well. It's a bit alien to us because it. it's not our favourite, but it's. It... I know, I know, and I, I know it's it's really derided. I mean, I love the music. I love Christopher Walker, and I, I love all. I, love, I even love the stuff in America, you know. And I know America is not a very exciting location for a bomb movie, but for me, it is. I, I just really like it. But I've always viewed it in the context, and this is this is just my personal thing. Of you know, it's his last one. He's kind of winking at the audience. I just wish they put something in the script. You know, the bit in Fear Eyes Only, which made me laugh out loud today when he says, you put your clothes on and I'll buy you an ice cream. If they just had a bit more of that tone to it um, and not pretend that he was 35, because look, Never Say Never Again is is a really decent movie. It's just in no way, shape or form a James Bond movie. But it's funny because they refer to his age. And if they'd just done that with a view to a curl, they kind of get a bit, it would have been great. Right. More right with Octopussy with Maud Adams, don't they? Where they're, they're great, yeah. Because I don't know how old she was. She was like 40 or something, yeah. wasn't she? So it's completely yeah. acceptable. You know, they look great as a couple. They had great chemistry. And she was a very strong character. But also, I think one of the things that, that isn't talked about is, you know, they they were keen to do another one with Roger, for sure. You know, I mean, you can see that The Living Daylights wasn't written for Timothy Dalton or Pierce Brosnan, probably. And um, when I was when I was looking into something years and years and years ago, I found a bit in Screen International, which is the uh, the trade publication for films in the UK, and it was in Peter Noble's column, who was the editor of Screen International, and he said that they were gearing up to do the next Bond after A View to a Kill with Roger, and the villain that they were courting, brace yourself for this, was going to be Bette Davis. What? Wow. Yeah. 
Yeah. But if you think about what eventually became the living daylights, the Joe Don Baker part has no physical contact whatsoever with anyone like in terms of fighting and stuff. It could easily yes, have been a woman. Yeah. Very interesting. And, and I, I, think, I, I think part of the reason that they put the pressure on him to try and hide his age to Roger um, is because they didn't see a way out. You know, and, and until a view to a kill didn't do very well, or hang on, let's put it in perspective. Until a view to a kill underperformed compared to Octopus and Fury's only, I think they thought they were just going to be banging those out into the 80s with him getting older and older and pretending that he was younger and yeah. younger. Um, and, and I suspect Never Say Never Again encouraged them to do that because, you know, Connery looked older and the film underperformed compared to Octopus's. So um, I think I think it's not like, it was, you know, Roger had some weird vanity of wanting to look younger. I think they just couldn't see another way of doing it at the time and they were reluctant to sort of age the golden goose, if you like. Did you get any hint of that from Roger himself? Any? Did you talk to him about that? Yeah, um, I mean, he 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 knew that he he didn't like it. He didn't like the tone of it. He knew he looked too old next to those those girls and out of context. Um, I'd never asked him about the the Bet Davis thing. I wish I had. Um, <laughs> I really, really wish I had. Um, but you know, he he thought I think that his career was going to be very different afterwards as well. Um, you know, I think he had those kind of five years in the wilderness afterwards. Um, where he was just kind of knackered and had enough, and you know, it must it must have been difficult to let go of. I mean, you know, it's it's a, it's, a, it's a weird thing as an actor, and it's also it's also difficult as well. You know, in the eighties, there was this idea that Roger Moore was a bad actor, and I don't know where the f- that came from. And it's something that really rankles in me constantly because I, I can tell you, he absolutely wasn't. He was a fantastic actor, um, a terrific movie star, and you only have to look at something like uh, The Man Who Haunted Himself or uh, The Naked Face or North Sea Hijack or any of those movies to see that. Um, or, or The Wild Geese, where he holds his, more than holds his own with Richard Burton and Richard Harris. But there was this... this one of the things I don't really like about this, this country is that we don't celebrate success. Um, and, and we very much took him for granted at the time. And, you know, he, he never really got to see how, um, how loved he was. You know, this huge outpouring of national grief when he died, obviously, you know, passed him by. Um, but it was always this thing that people go, oh, he's wooden. Wooden. I mean, I, I don't know what films these people were watching. It's nonsense. So, uh, yeah, it's a difficult one. You know, I don't think he should have done another one. I think I think he left at the right time. I just think if they tweaked that last movie a little bit, his legacy would have been different quicker. Yeah, that final scene that he does, it's uh, it's a bit different to Daniel Craig's final scene <laughs> in the shower with the robot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, but I'll be honest with you, I enjoyed Daniel Craig's final scene more because it means he can't come back. <laughs> wow, <laughs> scathing, scathing. If you if you had to choose though, Jonathan, um, and we had to put you on the spot, would who would you choose to be the next James Bond? I know you said that you can't see anyone, but you know there are I, contenders I out there. Um, yeah, the, none of the contenders do it for me. Um, I mean, you know, the the one that looks like James Bond, Henry Cavill, um, I just don't see it. I mean, you know, it's like you you read all these things about when Burt Reynolds was going to be Bond, and it's, it's, a, it's a really funny joke in a pub, but it's not realistic. And I kind of see, Henry, you know, he's Superman, and he's great, and he's fantastic, and he's a big star, and all those terrific things, but... I don't know. You know, part of the problem is that we don't we don't make TV shows like that anymore. You know, bear in mind that Pierce Brosnan came out of a TV show that was kind of like The Saint. You know, he was Remington Still, wasn't he? Everyone knew him in that charming, suave persona. You know, Timothy Dalton was, let, let's face it, Timothy Dalton was completely unknown and that was a left field choice. And that, that's great. And I think it will be more likely someone like that than a big star who's what i mean yeah it's not going to be tom hardy trust me you know if we were doing it 10 years ago um i would probably have said christian bale mm. i think he had all if they could have got christian bale to play bond and christopher nolan to direct it sign me f-ing right up i would have been all over that but the, the days passed and and you know i mean idris elba's not my idea of james bond but on the other hand he's definitely too old now mm. yeah, they have to start i mean 40 has to be the ceiling on it now it has to be um, unless they're just going to make one and, and what kill him again, you know, it's, it's kind of pointless. Um, <laughs> so, so, so I'm, I'm, I'm not for that. Um, I think, I think the, the best thing to do is to find someone new and young and, you know, who's come out of some kind of show. I mean, they make these shows in America. I, I don't see them over here, but I know there's, you know, there's a Magnum show and there's all those kind of shows. I'm not saying it should be him either, but somewhere there's got to be someone who, who gets it. Um, I suspect it will take a few years. I don't think we're going to see another Bond film for a while. You know, I mean, I, I always thought for, for years that they'd end Daniel Craig's tenure with a remake of Honor Majesty's Secret Service. And obviously it didn't quite turn out like that, but it wasn't far off, was it? 
well, it was a lot of uh, homage to uh, to that film for sure, for sure. I think you're right. I think it's going to be a while before before they make their next move, and uh, I've got to figure out and see what the the lay of the land is with the new bosses, I guess. But yeah, yeah. but I mean, you you say that obviously you weren't that into the the modern era, but I feel like you do retain a love for it and a hope that they can capture you as a as a Bond fan again. Of course that, I do. Yeah. Of course I do. I mean, right. look, you know, it's the greatest British film franchise of all time, and it's it's the blueprint for the modern action movie. You know, there is nothing like Bond, and there never will be. And as as much as I rolled my eyes at the last one, obviously there's bits of it that are great. Um, I love Ray Fiennes. I think he's a terrific M. Um, you know, I think he really adds gravity to it. Um, I, I really enjoy him. You know, I mean, one of my... One of my things I don't like about the 80s Bond films um, is I always found Robert Brown incredibly underwhelming. Yeah. Because yeah. mm-hmm. Bernard Lee was so good. And then Judy Dench was great. And he's, you know, it, it's kind of like he was the torchbearer in for one movie that they couldn't really be bothered to recast. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, as, as, as lovely as an actor as he was, but but it just, it was a bit of a weird one. Um, he, he never had that sort of um, sardonic, you know, edge to him. And Bernard Lee was wonderful, wasn't he? And you, and you really notice it as well in Fury's Only when they say, um, oh, M's on leave. You know, I, I can't. Did he die? He died just after they started filming, yeah. didn't they? Yeah, yeah. They brought him in for rehearsals, I think, and then he wasn't very well, and so they had to just recalibrate very quickly. But yeah. it's something we talked about in the way that he's not in there. It automatically makes it feel like a lesser Bond in a way that it's like almost like a TV special Bond rather than. Uh... It's, it's true, and also I, I remember reading that um, the the forgive me, Father, for I've sinned scene was supposed to be M rather than Q. Uh, um, and it, it does feel a bit weird that it's Q, the gadget guy, suddenly sitting in the confession booth. As funny as it is, and I, I love that scene. I think it's fantastic. But um, you know, it, it feels like a jar slightly. But I thought James Villiers was very good. Yeah, yeah. I thought he 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 would probably have been a better M than um, Robert Brown, to be honest. Yeah, that is true. A tantalising what if, I guess. Um, okay, um, so I think we'll wrap up now, Jonathan. But um, what, do you want to tell us what you're working on at the moment? What is uh, what's coming up for you apart from the book? I've just wrapped a movie called Renegades with Lee Majors, Michael Perret, Danny Trejo. Um, it's about a group of uh, SAS, ex-SAS soldiers, um, veterans who take revenge after one of their comrades is um, is killed, which is Lee Majors. And they sort of get the gang back together. Um, so that was a lot of fun. And I'm doing one in uh, February called Crossfire, um, which we're pitching as Die Hard in a shopping mall on Christmas Eve. Ooh, sounds mm. good. So, I'd like to do another podcast it, just on Lee Majors, but we can't, can't do that right now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lee, Lee was great. He was honestly that was so much fun. Yeah. You know, he was he was he was brilliant. He's a very good friend, and uh, I'm looking forward to doing another one with him. But yeah, I mean, great. Like I said, one of the great things about my job is I get to play with all these toys yeah. from the you know my childhood. Is are you circling Brosnan or Dalton for roles at all? I tr- do you know what we got really really f-ing close with Dalton this year. Um, he loved the script, um, and and the the director and I both only wanted to do it if Dalton would do the part. And his agent just said the budget was too low, not for his fee, but they don't want him doing low budget movies. Um, it was a British movie, it was a prison movie, and it was a really really lovely part for him. Um, I actually offered him the lead in We Still Kill the Old Way, and we just couldn't make it work with the money on that one. Um, and Brosnan, yeah, absolutely, I'd, I'd love to work with him. Um, he's the uh, he's 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 very much active in my sort of space, you know, at the higher end of, of it with these home entertainment action movies. So yeah, I, I'd love to. I'd love to work with all of them. You know, there's no one from these any of the Bond movies that I wouldn't want to work with. Fantastic. And if people want to follow you, they can uh, find you on Twitter, I, I believe. And they can find me on on Twitter at Southcott, on Instagram at Jonathan Southcott. Um, yeah, all over. Um, and I, I've also I've just remember one other massive Bond villain that I I've worked with a million times is Stephen Burkoff. Sorry, oh, I forgot oh, that somehow. Wow. When I think of Stephen Burkoff, I always think of that a brass eye uh, sketch now, which is a shame. <laughs> <laughs> well, we did. We, we 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 I did nine movies with him. Um, and um, yeah, I never think of him as a Bond villain because for me, the villain in Octopussy is Louis Jourdain. Yeah. Um, but he was he's wonderful and magnificent and uh, and very 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 good fun right well that um, that the bad wraps things up for this week so James said you've been a fantastic guest Jonathan um, I'm so glad we were able to make this work and, and get you on because uh, this has been a real privilege for us to speak to you about um, about uh, for your eyes only and Roger Moore and and everything else so um, guys if people want to find us on social media where can they find the podcast at James Bond A to Z on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And if people want to email the show, podcast at James Bond A to Z dot co dot UK. So just to say, the our next episode coming up will be from Russia with Love. So we'll be talking about that film. We've got a guest lined up for that. There may be a bit of a break over Christmas as we recharge our our baubles. Watch a few um, Bond films. But, uh, 
yeah, watch a few Bond films, including the new one, which is out on DVD soon. Um, but yeah, this is rubbish. No. <laughs> 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 okay, we'll watch for your eyes only then. Um, but yeah, exactly. The James Bond Eight Z podcast will return. Thanks a lot. Ciao. The James Bond A to Z podcast features Tom Butler, Brendan Duffy, and Tom Wheatley. The podcast was produced by Tom Wheatley, with music by Tom Ingomels, and artwork supplied by Helen Dolly. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.